This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a committed and creative life. So a couple quick things before we get to today's interview. Thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting the podcast on Patreon. I'm up to 421 bucks a month, which is almost halfway to my first stretch goal. I'm so touched by the generosity of the listeners to the Plant Yourself podcast, and I'm starting to imagine what is possible when this thing becomes a vehicle that can sustain me so that I can then turn around and sustain it and grow it to even bigger levels. It's really, really exciting. Also got to remind you that if you do decide to become a patron, you get stuff, you get access to the Healthy Habit Huddles, these recorded talks that I give on aspects of behavior change, healthy behavior, habit adoption, all that good stuff. And I'm finding that I'm referring to these again and again for my coaching clients, for people in the Big Change program, when they want to know, like, how do I do a fast assessment? How do I do a pre-mortem? What's the three most important things to think about if I've binged and I want to recover? How do I stop myself from sabotaging myself? All these things, I'm finding that the huddles are like a really good, quick, like break glass, sort of listen to this for 30 or 40 minutes, and then go about your day and change things for the better. So you can have access to all of those for just a dollar a month. And you can find, do all that at patreon.com slash plant yourself. Second thing, I've noticed a direct correlation between the number of reviews the Plant Yourself podcast receives on iTunes and the monthly downloads, meaning the more people who review the podcast each month, that raises it up in the rankings and more people can see it and subscribe to it and then pass it on. So it's a huge thing for helping the podcast grow and flex its mission muscles in the world. If you haven't done it yet, it doesn't cost a penny. Just go Google how to leave a review on iTunes and or just go to iTunes and do it. As few as five or 10 reviews a month can really keep us at the top of the Apple listings when people search for podcasts around health, plant-based life, all that sort of thing. So if you think this is a podcast worth having in the world, this is a really, really simple, easy, one-time way to contribute and make a difference, even if you can't afford to do it financially. Okay, so now that I've talked about money twice, I'm going to shift to today's guest, Rob Greenfield, who is on track to become quite the successful entrepreneur and capitalist, and then decided he wanted to take a different path altogether and become one of our generation's most interesting and, I would argue, effective environmental activists. He's really put the fun and friendly into environmental activism. He's known for his eye-catching and media-worthy campaigns and adventures, which we're going to talk about in the podcast, to wake people up to the destruction we're causing our planet. He brings a positivity and a sense of humor and, and humility to what too often is like this dreary scold fest of people telling us how badly we're treating the earth. So Rob was originally on track to live this opulent American dream, nice stuff, fast car, big house, enough money to do whatever he wanted, a life in which he never had to think about the downstream consequences of his actions, choices, and consumption. And then somehow he woke up. It dawned upon him that there was this direct link between his individual choices and the faraway and hypothetical poisoning of our ecosystem, that his 
convenient, comfortable existence had been underwritten by factory farms, oil spills, and trash heaps that wouldn't decompose for like 500 years. And he said to me, I was destroying the very things that I love. And unlike the rest of us who have this realization and then go distract ourselves with something, he changed everything about how he was living. And when I say everything, I mean everything. I mean, Rob is this really successful media-savvy personality, and he's decided not to monetize anything. He's got a net worth that he consciously keeps below $15,000. He gives away 100% of his speaking fees. And as you listen to him, you'll realize that he is the real deal and not just a media-savvy guy selling a lifestyle brand to the rest of us. So without further ado, Rob Greenfield, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me on and thanks for reaching out to me. It's good to be here. Yeah, you've got so many great stories. And why don't we just um, just dive in um, by just, you know, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you've usually with these interviews, I like have one or two points, but you've got so much going on and it's so inspiring. Um, why don't you just sort of, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time and you're not wearing, you know, 30 pounds of garbage or biking across, like we just meet someone, like how do you describe who you are and what you do? Mm, I guess I'm often kind of quiet and don't usually describe who I am and what I do, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, you know, basically I um, just am a person that's trying to wake people up to what's going on in the world, get people to start thinking about our actions and how they, you know, ripple around the world through everything we do, uh, the food we eat, the water we drink, the cars we drive, the gasoline that we put into them, the, uh, you know, how all of our actions matter and uh, how we can all make positive changes to have a more more positive impact on the world. And I do a lot of that through um, different activism campaigns and adventures that are designed to be really eye-catching and, and uh, interesting and fun and you know, not, not doom and gloom, uh, and more hopeful instead. Right. And you certainly have the, the, the sort of the, the, the marketer storyteller's gift for put, putting out things that are really compelling that people just want to follow and, and, and learn more. But let's, why don't we start with, you know, your bef before all this, you, you seem to be very conscious of your, your past contribution to environmental degradation in your in your new ted talk you've got a a still shot of you basically like drinking beer out of a plastic duck and yeah. and like either french kissing or humping i couldn't quite tell a christmas tree and you write about you know trying to offset all the carbon you've ever used from airline travel so take us back to before you became this um this sort of Pied Piper of, of environmental activism? Sure. Well, I was living a fairly normal life um, it, up until about 2011. I grew up uh, in northern Wisconsin, and I really uh, had bought into the American dream from a very young age, the idea of having just a nice house and a nice car and a nice family and uh, having nice stuff and having enough money to be able to do what you want and uh, just this idea that money was security and um, 
you know, not really having to think about our actions. We live in a time uh, on earth where uh, in many ways life is very easy and convenient and peaceful and where we can have a lot of free time and a lot of fun. And so, you know, I wasn't, I was just kind of living a, a pretty normal American life. And then in 2011, I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and just started to realize, wow, all the things that I'm doing cause destruction to the world. All this convenience that is ingrained into my life, uh, it turns out a price is being paid, not by me, but by someone else or some other species. And so I learned that, you know, the food I was eating was coming from factory farms where animals were being treated horribly. And, um, you know, the gas that I was pumping into my car was a part of the routine 10,000 oil spills that happen per year. Um, you know, the uh, trash that I was making, well, that could be around in, you know, when my kids, 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 kids were on earth. And, you know, just these things that we do on a daily basis, I just started to sort of unravel my life and realize, well, it turns out my life isn't what I thought it was. It turns out, you know, I'm destroying the very things that I love, which I've always been an animal lover, but never made the connection that my life was connected to them. Um, and so that was the point where I realized I really had to start changing what I was doing so that I wasn't a hypocrite and so that I could actually like feel good about uh, my life and my actions. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reminded of the... Um... Saturday Night Live character Debbie Downer. <laughs> did, did you go through a phase where you're like you're telling all your friends like, oh that Coke can? Do you know that it's you know that Coke bottle is going to be here for 500 years? And you know, oh yeah, sure, let's let's go out for a drive to the mountains. Yeah, let's you know, let's sure let's poison some kids with uh, fuel <laughs> fumes. Like, did 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 you go through kind of a negative? Because it seems like from the the surface of everything's great, everything's groovy, let's just consume because things are so easy, to seeing the dark underbelly must have come with some sort of uh, like negative emotions. Yeah, well, there were negative emotions, but the thing is, um, I've never been a very negative guy. I've always been a happy, positive person, and I wasn't about to let this like ruin my life. And so what I actually happened was when I learned all of this, instead of feeling totally down and negative, I actually felt really empowered because at that point, you know, I was watching all these documentaries and reading all these books and just educating myself. And I started to learn, okay, well, you know, here's the problems, but good news is that there's solutions to most of them. There's alternatives to most of these things that I'm doing and so instead of feeling the doom and gloom, I felt really empowered to make changes in my life. And, and then what happened was the more of the, cha the changes that I made, you know, I started to make these changes less for myself, more for the environment, for humanity, for, for other species. But what happened was, you know, all these things that I was doing that were good for the environment were ultimately good for myself as well. So, you know, starting to eat more, you know, whole foods, starting to shop local and go to the local farmer's market and stop eating less of the packaged processed junk food, um, starting to ride my bike more instead of being in the car, which that made, you know, that, that made me a lot happier because no one likes sitting in traffic. Uh, instead, I was getting exercise instead of pounding my head against the steering wheel. 
and anger at traffic. And um, so ultimately what happened is I found myself happier and healthier as I was making changes and my, you know, I was finding my life to be more purposeful than it had been. And I was starting to become a more passionate person about life. And so um, I never had a strong phase of like making everybody around me feel like crap. Instead, actually what happened was people started to feel, I think a lot of the times good around me because they were inspired to make changes too, as I was making changes that made them feel good, good as well. Oh, that's that's quite a gift because you know those of us in in the plant based or vegan community we have a common experience of you go out to dinner and you order a uh, you ask for like a bowl of strawberries instead of the ice cream and everyone around you gets defensive and starts asking you about protein. Yeah, <laughs> like you 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 seem to have a gift for uh, for representing these values in a way that doesn't make other people defensive. Well. I, is that true? And if so, how do you do it? I, I mean, I'm not. I'm by no means perfect, but but I do generally, I do generally, uh, I'm able to come off much more positive than negative. And um, patience is key. You know, uh, the reality of the situation, I I think, is you know, the more that I learn about the human existence, the more that I realize that we all live in a very delusional state of existence, and generally, even the conscious ones of us are still fairly delusional about about the whole human existence and everything. And so because of that, I'm very patient with everyone, including myself, because we're all, you know, we're all delusional. Uh, and so when you think about things that way, um, it makes it a little easier. But also because, it, you know, the other thing is that we're all programmed. So most of our thoughts that we have, uh, come from our upbringing, the society that we are raised in, uh, media. And so I don't blame people for believing what they believe because it's very deeply ingrained in you to believe what your parents might have taught you, what your teachers might have taught you, what government might have taught you. And so it takes a long time to unravel those things that might have been wrong. Um, so because of that, it helps me to be patient. And then lastly, because, you know, anyone who's plant-based for the most part probably wasn't plant-based at one time, which means they were in the same situation that that person that they're mad at was, and they probably had the same preconceived notions and ideas. And so how can you be mad at someone when you were that person? Instead, you should, you should un be able to understand and come from a place of understanding that, yes, I was once there too, just because I made it uh, here before they did doesn't make me better than them. I just am at a different path, place in the path that they may end up being in a couple of years too and that I wasn't on maybe five years ago. So you started by making these changes, I think you said in one of your videos, like one a week for, for two years. Um, I'm curious how you decided to, to, to not draw the line. Because I remember, you know, watching uh, Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, and at the end they had like 11 things you could do, like swap out incandescent bulbs for compact fluorescent or LED, take shorter showers. And I remember watching that and thinking, 
that's not going to do anything. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to make people feel good. But, you know, again, when we're stuck in our, in our, in our societal uh, straitjacket of what is normal and what is acceptable, it's really hard to go far beyond that. But you didn't stop. You, every, every week you had another one, and, and you know, the, the, um, the activism became more and more abnormal and extreme. What, what was going through your mind? Was there a point at which you thought, well, now, you know, now I'm a good recycler, now I'm a good um, you know, bring my own bagger to the store. And, and you just, you know, you thought, well, that's, that's enough. That's the, the limit. Or how did you, how did you not draw a line? Mm. Well, I, I mean, I guess part of that is because that is my character to take things far, no matter what it is. Like I'm, I've always been one that, that sort of likes to test things to the extreme and sort of do more extreme things. In the past, it might have been, you know, when I was younger, how many beers can you possibly fit into your stomach in a one-hour period? Or, uh, you know, maybe more extreme sports, things like that. But I've always been sort of, ex- I've always been sort of extreme with testing the, you know, some of the experiences of, of being a, a human being. And so, so that's part of it. It's just in my character. But the other part is that I have been fighting the delusion that we, that so many of us have. And, you know, again, yeah, it's like the idea of making 10 changes, like just getting just the reusable bags, you know, just, uh, you know, riding your bike a little bit more each week. Ultimately, like it's important to make those changes, but if you really want to reflect on your life and be able to say that you're living a life that doesn't destroy the earth, um, and the things that you love, it takes much more, even, like, you know, one of the biggest changes that, that you can make to reduce your environmental impact is to eat uh, a lot less meat. Some people would say, you know, eat completely vegan or a completely plant-based diet, you know, or you could also eat, you know, 80 or 90% less and still some. But the point that it is, is that even that isn't enough. That's just one action. And if we're talking about actual global sustainability, um, that is just it is big, but we have to take everything many steps further unless we want to kid ourselves, unless, we want, unless we're okay with kidding ourselves or living a life of hypocrisy. And I guess that's a big part of it is I've been really trying to not just kid myself. I've been actually trying to really truly understand my actions and really take it to a depth uh, where I live very minimal hypocrisy. I'll always live with some hypocrisy, but but minimize it. And, um, and yeah, just, I guess it's, it's largely a seeking of truth and of, uh, truth. Yeah. Truth is a big part of it. Gotcha. So, uh, I'm going to get back to some of those points, but maybe it'd be more useful to do them in the context of, of your actual exploits. So what was the, the, you, you, you spent these two years really sort of paring down your, your footprint um, reducing the ways you you contributed to the harm of the planet, and then at some point you you had the idea like you wanted to inspire others. What was the first thing that you did to try to to make of your life a uh, a, uh, a show, to, you know, for lack of a better word, to 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 expl- to show people what was possible? Yeah, well, it was uh, about two, yeah two years after 
making changes, and I really started to feel like I had. Um, I really had started to feel like I really was starting to be the change that I wanted to see. And so I, at that point, decided, you know, that I wanted to really inspire more people to make positive changes as well. And so my first big adventure, and, you know, the thing is, I wanted to do it in a way that is enjoyable for myself, enjoyable for other people, that doesn't uh, point fingers, and instead gets people inspired to be a part of the solution. So I decided to do it through adventures. And so my first adventure was to bike across the United States on a bamboo bike and try to have no negative environmental impact at all. Um, and that way I'd be really living it to the, you know, living sustainability to the extreme, uh, but doing it in a way that was like, you know, really educational and really uh, interesting and inspirational at the same time. And did you do that by yourself? Did you have a, a film crew, or how, how did you how did you think you were going to document this? I had uh, my friend Brent join me. Actually, he uh, him, he had biked across the country once before. That's actually how we met. And his passions were cycling and uh, photography. So I thought, well, and it, I thought, well, maybe he'd want to join, and um, he did. So I got a camera. And he didn't have a bike at the time, so I got a bike. And uh, so he had the gear he needed to be able to bike across the country again and uh, be able to shoot to create a documentary. And we didn't ultimately end up creating a, a documentary because that was a little harder than expected. But then this was when I was just first getting started. But we did take a lot of great photos, and we produced a five-video uh, mini-series about sustainability that goes through all of the basic aspects of sustainable living, the first episodes on food, then uh, waste, then water, energy, and transportation. And um, yeah, it was a 104-day trip. And well, Brent and I had a really good time, but also we were <laughs> every day being together was also quite the challenge. How so? Oh, just riding your bike with the same person all day, every day. And and working together and it just you know was was just a very hard part of one of the hard, one of the hard parts of the whole trip so what were your rules for for yourself for that trip so for food the rule was i could only local organic unpackaged food which you know for most people that listen to this podcast know that you know at most most grocery stores across the country you, you just can't find that uh, we have what are called food deserts, which are areas where there's basically no access to healthy foods, like, you know, let alone a banana shipped from the other side of the world, not even, you know, not even f any fruits or vegetables that are fresh. So the exception was I could eat food that was going to waste, which meant dumpster diving. Um, and uh, ultimately, that's where I started to learn about how much food is wasted in the United States, which has become one of the main issues that I really focus on is food waste and how we can stop wasting food and make sure everybody has enough food. Um, and then for water, the rule was I could only use water from uh, natural bodies of water, so no using water from on the grid, no flush toilets, sinks, washing machines, any of that. Um, for electricity, I could only use electricity that I created myself with the little solar panels I had, so no turning on a light switch, a fan, air conditioning uh, if I wanted to go into a store. And there was only automatic doors. I had to wait till someone walked through and then hop in behind them. 
<laughs> and, the, and then um, waste, I had to carry every piece of trash I created across the country with me. Um, so that meant, you know, I had to be very careful about the trash I was creating. And then lastly, for transportation, I had to bike the whole way, no using any vehicle, including buses or uh, public transportation. Gotcha. What, what, did, what surprised you about your experience on that trip? Were there things that were easier than you thought or harder than you thought, or were people more or less interested? Well, actually, one of the things that surprised me was the ease of biking across the country because the thing is, I think the, the bicycle is, is really, really uh, overlooked. I think it really is one of the greatest machines that we've ever created that is able to do such a large amount with such a minimal input and being a an extremely low tech uh, machine. And so, you know, it surprised me to see just once you start to look around, you realize all sorts of people ride bikes from like five year olds to 80 year olds from people that are in perfect shape to, you know, people that are a couple hundred pounds overweight. And so I just started to see people, you know, I met 70 year old women that were biking across the country. Um, and, uh, it was really, really powerful to see how powerful of a tool the bicycle is and um, how beneficial it is. Hmm. Okay. So, so you did your 104-day trip, and now you have some sort of a, I guess, a social media following. Um, what, was, what was next? Um, well, after that trip, I, my, I just... Uh, kind of continued doing lots of uh, adventures and activism campaigns. My my whole thing was just trying to do as much as I possibly could in a short period of time and reach as many people as possible while still always being learning myself. On that trip and on all my trips, I'm always learning and advancing as a human being while being able to to share and inspire other people as well. The next summer, I biked across the country again. That was on the Good Fluence Tour, uh, doing good deeds across the country. And, um, I did the trip between there where I flew to Panama, which, uh, with no money, which just closing my back and passport and had to make it back to San Diego, which was seven countries. And the idea was to, um, you know, mainstream media kind of shows the world as this dangerous, violent place. And by landing there, uh, with nothing, I was dependent upon the kindness of humanity and the idea was to make it home and, and ultimately show that there's so many good people out there and just show another side of the world from what most people are exposed to on TV. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, as I said, I always try to be learning. And for me, I think one thing is that I've become good at giving, you know, being very willing to give to others. But the hard thing is receiving. And I think in the United States that generally holds true is that people have a hard time being given to um, but I think to be able to really be able to give to others, you have to be able to receive as well. And so for me, that was the hard part was being okay with people helping me. Um, but I think to be truly compassionate, you need to need compassion sometimes. And so that that actually ended up being one of the, the big learning things for me out of that trip. So was there a particular instant or a person that you might have looked at and thought, you know, they have so many fewer resources than I do in general, but I really need their help right now. And you had to sort of <clears throat> humble yourself to, 
to accept their help? Was, is there something that sticks in your mind? Well, that's, so that's the tricky balance is obviously, you know, you don't want to be taking resources from someone who needs them where they would be going without because that just, uh, I don't think that would be very cool. So the thing was, um, you know, in every country, there are plenty of people who have more than enough. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they think of, you know, people have this really ridiculous idea when they think of Latin America, uh, Africa, Asia, they just think that everybody's in poverty. Of course, there's a large amount of poverty, but of course, every country has a large amount of wealth and wealthy people as well, and also a middle class. And so for me, you know, if I was hitchhiking, I was hitchhiking with people who had cars, who had, you know, the income to be able to be going somewhere. Um, I was never going to, or, but, you know, I did go to very rural places and, and there I would be happy to sleep on someone's floor uh, because I wasn't consuming any of their resources. But if someone seemed like they didn't have enough to eat, I would be very cautious to uh, accept in anything that I thought would make them go without. Um, so I don't, I guess I can think of one time this, this, I was kind of in the middle of nowhere and I was quite hungry. And this woman offered me, um, I don't remember what kind of food it was, but she had this food stand. I think she could see that I was having a hard time. And so she offered me a little bit of food and I accepted it. Um, but yeah, that was one of those tricky balances of making sure that you don't ever put someone else out of what they need. Um, I'm curious about the the trash. Uh, so you uh, you went across the country trying to be trashless, and I know you you did an initiative in New York City for a month called Trash Me, where you just wore. You, 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 you consumed like a regular New Yorker, but you wore it all on your person in clear plastic bags. You looked like a sort of, you know, dumpster Michelin man. Yeah. What, what was that like? Um, well, yeah, basically, I mean, you first mentioned that on my bike trip across the country, the idea was to create as little garbage as possible. And so on that trip, that was my goal. I only created two pounds of trash in 104 days. Um, so just a tiny little bag. And the average American creates about two pounds of trash by one o'clock in the afternoon on any given day. The average American creates four and a half pounds of trash per day. So uh, in Trash Me, which was last year, I did the opposite. Instead of trying to create as little trash as possible, which is the way I normally live my life, instead I just, uh, for one month, uh, tried. instead I lived like the average American. So I embraced the average American way of creating lots of trash. And so I ate like the average person, shopped like the average uh, person, and consumed like the average person does, and basically just floated along in the breeze of American consumerism. And I ended up creating about three pounds of trash per day, so less than the average person. But you know, by the end of the month, that added up to 90 pounds of trash. And I had a, a specially designed trash suit with these clear plastic compartments to hold it all in. So by the end of it, you know, I was wearing 90 pounds of trash everywhere I went. Sometimes I was outside. It, the rule was I had to wear it everywhere I, everywhere I went. So that was pretty, 
pretty tough uh, project. Yeah, I saw one of the videos you're trying to get through the turnstile, I guess, in the subway. And, yeah. And what, what I found really interesting about that was most people did not really, like, even look in your direction. Like, we got one sort of sideways glance from a lady who was going through the adjacent turnstile. Um, did you did you find that, you know, I know I'm sure, I'm sure like, like kids really stared at you, but did, were most people, like, trying to not make eye contact? Were they you know, worried, like, you know, you, you cut quite a dashing figure in New York city. Well, you did have some people that did, you know, avoid eye contact at all cases. And I didn't know how it would go because it is New York city where people have seen it all. But it was about the third day into the trip. This woman walked up to me. It's not the trip, third day of the, the project. And I was wearing, you know, very little trash at that time, maybe six or eight pounds or something like that. And she walked up to me and she said something like, what, you know, what are you doing? And I told her and she said, uh, she said, I know I'm supposed to have seen it all because I live in New York City, but this is new to me. <laughs> and that was the one of the moments where I realized like, okay, this is definitely going to work. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. And a little ways in, it took it took a little while for the trash to really accumulate so that it became a scene. About a week and a half in, um, it started to catch media. Uh, it went onto one of the front pages of one of the newspapers there that was all over the city. And then um, a lot of, and then about a week and a half in, almost every local news channel had put it on. And then it, it started to reach, you know, international media. And so it only took about two weeks to the point where I couldn't go anywhere for more than five minutes before people were yelling, it's the trash man, I saw you on TV last night, or I saw you in the newspaper. And so then it became really fun because it was just everywhere I went, people wanted to talk to the trash man and talking to the trash man meant having a conversation about trash. <laughs> So what, one of the things you point out in, in the video is that the trash you were wearing is the teeniest tip of the iceberg of the trash that that, that that represents in the whole cycle. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So when we have uh, when we put a, a trash can on the curb, uh, different estimates say that that's between there's that actually between 30 and 70 trash cans worth of waste were made up the production line to create that trash in the first place. So what we actually see, the trash that we make, which is a lot, is actually only the absolute tip of the trash iceberg. So before any of that stuff gets to us, there's a whole production line. You have first the taking the raw materials from the earth. So that could be mining, it could be... Uh, cutting down trees, uh, it could be harvesting from oceans. And so a lot of those processes create a lot of waste. For example, mining creates a lot of toxic waste because they often you will ins insert chemicals into the ground uh, for different purposes. It could be softening it or being able to actually extract the metal from the rock. And so you create a lot of waste there. Then you have the manufacturing, you know, then you have shipping everything. So you have fossil fuels being burned. You have the, uh, the manufacturing center where it's, uh, where it's sent to. And there you have, um, you know, of course, 
there's a lot of waste as well. The trimmings and, and things like that. You have things like, you know, sometimes you might have to produce one thing, they make a mistake and they throw away one million of those things uh, because of a mistake or switching the prototype and then not being able to sell it. Um, then you have, you know, more shipping, lots of fossil fuels being burnt from shipping to the different places. Then you have um, it being sent to the retail store. And of course, that's packaged often in plastic and, uh, and uh, packaging that you don't see uh, before you actually buy it. So there's just so much that happens behind the scenes before we ever, uh, before it ever gets to us. And that's where most destruction, that's where most destruction actually happens, uh, behind the scenes stuff. That's, that's basically kept from our eyes. So what's, what's your hope in, in showing people the, you know, the 90 pounds of trash you created, because, you know, on, on, the, on one level, it's our behavior, it's our collective actions and consciousness that create this world. And on the other hand, like, at the same time as you're saying, um, one person can make a difference, you're also kind of saying it's the system. And what any of us do individually doesn't really touch that system. How, how do you how do you navigate that for yourself and, and with others? Yeah, so I mean that's a really good it's a really good point, and it's something that I've been realizing more and more as time goes on. And so I basically look at it as a multiple pronged system. You need to you need to change your own actions, but then you also have to be proactive with trying to change these corporations. Now, the thing is, I think one of the most powerful things a human being can do today is not be a hypocrite, is to be genuine and to be authentic. And so the thing is to change the corporations, but to not change yourself first is, is kind of, is a, it's hypocritical to go to that corporation and say, Hey, we, uh, we don't like the way you're doing this stuff. Please stop doing it. Yeah, but I'm still going to buy it and use it. I think what's more powerful is you want that corporation to change so you don't you don't support the the product that you you know you don't <laughs> you ethically don't support and then you try to get them to change. So for example, if you want a grocery store to stop wasting food, but it turns out your trash can is full of food, first you have to change your actions to stop wasting food. Then you go to that grocery store and you talk to them about how they can make changes to stop wasting food. So you know, when we take things really, you know, to a deeper level, that's the way I look at it. We have to change ourselves and change the corporations. I love that. And the, the image that came to my mind was like, you know, begging your drug dealer to stop selling drugs. Yeah. Right? Or, or begging the ice cream truck to stop coming down your street because if they come down your street, you're going to pay and you're yeah. going to buy the stuff. But And you actually bring up a really good point there because it's reasonable to beg your drug dealer to stop selling drugs because you're addicted to them and you're going to buy them. And so our society, whether it's an addiction or not, like if that stuff is in the grocery store aisle or it's or wherever and it's what you've, you've been doing for decades, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years – it's hard to stop. And so ultimately what will create greater change 
is if the corporations stop doing it and the people don't have the option, like the drug dealer stopping the selling of drugs, that makes it a lot easier and that will create the larger change overnight. And so it is a bigger deal to be able to change the corporation's actions because that can instantly change the actions of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people instantly. But if, but, uh, you, I think you have to lead by example and, and have the strength to, to get them to make that change at the same time. And ultimately, you know, what we're talking about is it's very difficult. It takes a lot of, for anyone who really wants to change their actions in a world where it's not, you know, the most conducive, you have to be kind of consistently going against the grain of society. It takes dedication and strength and you really got to be able to, to stick to it and to stand up in order to be able to, to do this in, in the, you know, in 2017, in the 21st century. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of the core of why I called my site and my podcast plant yourself. Like, yeah, it's about the plants, but really it's what you just said, going against the grain of society and sticking to it and standing up. Um, which brings me to the, to like what I really, really, really appreciate about you is that you're not getting rich off of this. Yeah. And it was weird for me to realize that because like, you know, you talk about getting corporations to change what they do. Well, you know, the way our system is set up is as long as people are going to buy it, it's very rational for the corporations to keep selling it. There's no publicly traded corporation that would say, you know, well, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to do the right thing, even though we're going to make fewer returns for our investors. I'm curious, you know, you've, um, vowed to give away 90% of your income from all your media to have no more than $15,000 in net worth at, at any one time. Um, like that, that's the part that really struck me is like, okay, this guy, Rob walks his talk. He's not just talking the game and sort of cashing in. Cause you probably could. Mm. What, 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 how did your thoughts evolve on the whole, like participating in capitalism thing? Well, yeah, I think there's many aspects to that. One being, um, you know, I want to see a world where we do things for reasons other than money. And of course we do that. However, our current system is built primarily on the exchange of money. And I often see that time and time again when I ask people what they're doing with most of their life. And I say, if you weren't being paid for that, would you still do it? And the answer is no. And if they're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, which is a, you know, a majority of their waking time, and the answer is no, then that means they're living a majority of their, their time for money. And these corporations, they're based on you know, their, their bottom line. It always, it's profit. Uh, you know, what's going to be the thing that brings in the most money? And publicly traded companies, they are acquired by their law to do whatever it takes to um, to benefit their shareholders, to bring in the most money for their shareholders. So this is a system that causes mass amount of destruction to the world. And for me to really buy into that, I think would totally weaken my message and what I'm doing. That's part of it. So I want to show people that it's possible to have a very, very purposeful, passionate 
beautiful life that's not centered around money, that's centered around caring for each other, that's centered around caring for ourselves, that's centered around experiences, love, relationship, um, connection to the world rather than money. Another um, really big part of it is that money really changes things. So you can get into something and not be doing it for money, but once all of a sudden you can make a lot of money off of it, it really starts to change your motives. And it doesn't have to be that way, but that's just what I've seen time and time again. Time and time again, I see people who get rich off of what they're doing, and then it changes the reason they're doing it. And maybe they take this deal, um, even though it's not what they should do, but they can make a bunch of money off of it, so they, they do it. And then I guess one other big thing is that, you know, for me, I donate, it's now 100% of my media income, so my book and TV show and things like that, to nonprofits. The way I look at it is they can do better things for the world than I can with that money. Um, and so it's trying to live a life that has the, the most impact. And uh, I just know that they, you know, these nonprofits that I really believe in, I just know that they can do better with it than just me, you know, buying whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something I I don't I don't know how to talk about it with with my normal friends, but like when people like you know Zuckerberg or or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, you know, and they're they're touted as these philanthropists giving away a huge percentage of their fortune, but it's still like, you know, they get to decide, like where that like, you know, that that somehow they've accru accrued this money and taken it completely out of democracy. Like they get to decide that, you know, this is the disease or this is the project or we're going to put people on Mars or whatever, whatever the thing is that, you know, it's always going to be some sort of technological solution to our problems. Right. It's always going to be build more, um, spend more. And that's going to get us out of our environmental mess. Mm -hmm. and, and there's something so beautiful about you saying, I want to be of the greatest service by not using this lever. Yeah. And, and also because, you know, I really think that really rich people have a very hard time actually understanding, actually being able to relate to the problems. It's like, okay, you build tiny houses, but have you ever lived in a tiny house? Okay, you're trying to fight poverty, but have you ever been in any form of poverty to be able to really understand what the people need? Um, and that's one of the biggest problems we have today is like people don't actually understand the problems. Like, Okay, you have a nonprofit and you're working to you're working on homelessness, but do you really know how these people feel? And so that's why that's where I feel like we need to be to be closer to the problem to be able to be a solution than be totally disconnected from the problem. And uh, so I think that you know, for me personally, it helps me to have very little money because life could be a lot more convenient and easy if I had a lot of money. Like it's hard right now. I only have $1,200 to last me the rest of the year. And, um, you know, yesterday going grocery shopping with my girlfriend, we had to be like very, very careful. Now there's no reason that I would have to do that because I could make money if I want to, but I'd rather live a simple life and have that bit of struggle. You know, some it's nothing compared to what a lot of people go through, but I'd rather have put in my resources towards something much bigger uh, than myself than have 
those then have that that ease and convenience. So you you lived in a tiny house that you got off of Craigslist for under a thousand bucks, but I think you've you've sold it and donated the money. Do you live anywhere now? You just, are you traveling? Yeah. So then, um, what I did with the tiny house, I had bought it for nine hundred fifty dollars and um, was able to do auction it off and raise ten thousand dollars to build ten tiny houses for people in San Diego that don't have homes, try to, you know, build a little community for people that are homeless. And uh, that's in the works right now. And so since I left the tiny house um, last year in uh, February, so it's been over a year and a half, I've been traveling, um, doing different projects around the country, some in uh, other countries. And so at the moment, I'm actually in Salt Spring Island, Vancouver, and I'm actually visiting the guy who built my tiny house uh, right right now, and uh, I'm going to be learning more about some of the stuff that he's doing. He's really, really a really cool guy. He's about probably, I don't know, maybe 80 years old, and he wants to change the way we deal with basically wood. He has this system called iWood, like the, the word I-W-O-O-D. It's iWood International, and the idea is to really change the way we that we deal with wood. So anyway, yeah, no, not living anywhere. But uh, this winter, my girlfriend and I are moving to Florida, and we're going to build a tiny house uh, out of wasted material, almost completely wasted materials. So after two years of traveling, we're going to settle back down. And then actually the project that you would probably be pretty stoked about is that then – uh, starting next year, I'm going to do a project where for one year, everything that I eat, uh, I'm going to grow, forage, or hunt. So, you know, down to the salt, I'll have to harvest that from the ocean, the spices, everything for an entire year I have to get from the land. Wow. And that'll be in Florida? Yeah, that'll be in Florida. And I'll have to start gardening a good six six months to maybe 12 months in advance. So it'll it's a year project, but it'll actually be more like a year and a half or two-year two project. Wow. What, what, I'm curious um, what your rules about gardening will be, because I just released a, uh, an interview with Will Bonsall, who uh, is a veganic gardener, who talks about like the hidden, just like you're talking about what's, what's you know, the hidden costs of our convenient society. He talks about the hidden costs of, you know, getting bags of sulfamag or, uh, or cow fertilizer. What, what are your rules going to be for your garden? Well, um, so I don't have every, uh, the exact rules set, but basically what I'm going to be doing is it's urban gardening. We're going to be in Orlando. And so what I'll be doing is farming lots of front yards. So I'll be turning lawns into gardens and um, then giving a portion of the food to the owner of that lawn and then taking some of the food myself and then donating some of the food as well. And so I'll probably be farming maybe a dozen different gardens and then huh. planting fruit trees around the city. Most of those I'll, I won't get to eat from because they'll take more years but uh, before they're fruiting. But uh, very, very like community oriented. I'm going to be helping other people start their own gardens. Um, and the way that I'm going to start, the way that I'm going to get my compost is the first, probably within the first week, I'm going to go dumpster diving at grocery stores with a friend in his truck and fill up probably like two truckloads worth of 
uh, fruit and vegetable waste and bread waste and um, make giant compost piles so that in three months I'll have tons of compost that's complete, almost completely made out of uh, food waste. And, and, then awesome. yard, and then I'll mix it with yard waste that I collect as well to make that. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm really excited about. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to resist the temptation to turn that into a lucrative business. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, that's an interesting thing, like selling food. I've never sold food before. And like, obviously, you know, like, I just meant I meant the compost. Oh, the like, compost. Like yeah. collect, you know, you're, you're going to save the, I mean, the grocery stores are probably going to be freaked out that you're, you know, hanging out back there. But, but if, if, you know, if their bean counters got a hold of it, they would be like, this guy could save us a lot of money in hauling charges. Yeah. Well, uh, that's one of the big things I do is raise awareness about food waste. Um, yeah. As far as selling it, I have a hard time selling, you know, making a monetary transaction out of anything like food, uh, compost, things that are from the earth, like I have a hard time monetizing it. I just want to give it to people. Uh, so I doubt I'll be selling any of it. But not to say that I don't you know, vastly respect people that have small compost businesses or local farms or all that sort of stuff and that make money off of it. That's a great way of living. But just for me personally, I have a very hard time exchanging money for it. Wow, that's beautiful. So I'm looking at the clock. We're, I'm four minutes past when I promised to let you go. There's so much more here that, uh, that we, could, we could dive into, but there is a ton of information on your website, which I would like you to, to tell people so they can, they can continue exploring your, your world on their own time. Yeah, so my website's just uh, robgreenfield.org. Uh, and then you can find me on social media. I mostly use Facebook, but you can find me on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. And if you just type in Rob Greenfield into those, you'll find me. Um, and you can go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, although I rarely send those. But I update when I'm doing like speaking tours and things like that. Um, and you're not selling stuff. <laughs> I don't think I've ever sold anything through my website. My, my whole social media and website are not monetized. Um, so yeah, you won't get, uh, you will have no offers of selling stuff. That's for sure. Good. So I can, uh, I can send everybody to you and I can still hit them up with my own offers and we won't compete. Yeah. You don't have to worry about me competing with you there. (laughs) Well, Rob, it's such an honor to, to talk to you, to hear the, the clarity of your vision and the, your, your, your impulse to, to live without hypocrisy, to continually dig into those areas that are unexamined in our lives and, and show us how we can actually be happier and healthier and more engaged as individuals and as a species and as a, 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 a citizen of the planet by saying by by saying no to stuff that we're we don't need yeah so i just i just want to honor your your spirit your creativity and really express my gratitude the the time that you've given to to me and to uh my audience well thank you so much for having me on and thanks for all the good messages that you're spreading and uh, it was really nice to spend an hour with you amen take care and be well all right thanks howard
If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 234. If you're new to this show, you can catch up on 233 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly-ish Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get a free report at plantyourself.com slash slippery dash slope. That's the slippery slope report back out of the archives. And it's about how to avoid going down a slippery slope where, you know, you start eating well, you start exercising, and then one little thing slips up and then wee down the slope until you're right back where you were. This is how to stop that, nip that in the bud. Again, plantyourself.com slash slippery dash slope. If you would like to support the Plant Yourself podcast, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write that review on iTunes, or you can become a patron of the show at plantyourself.com. Look on the right sidebar for Patreon, or just head straight over to Patreon slash plantyourself. In garden news, we got a tomato from the ones that my wife planted in the late summer. Might be the only one we get before frost. We've got the row covers out and ready to cover all our delicious greens, so they will last us through the summer. And I'm searching every day on Craigslist for a BCS chipper shredder attachment for $500 or less so that we can take all the brush, turn it into chips, and just like Will Bonsell taught us in episode 224, turn the forest's fertility into use in our garden. In running news, I'm still taking it easy. I'm going to do two full weeks of not pushing myself. And then, uh, so that's another few days. And then on the third week, I'll be back up and running and starting to prepare for the Tobacco Road Marathon in March, hoping, just like I hoped last year, to Boston qualify at three hours and 30 minutes. This time I have a marathon under my belt, too, actually, and so hopefully I'll be smarter and achieve that goal this time. So it's time for gratitudes. Of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer, Cora player extraordinaire, for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace, as this show's theme music. Check out willridenauer.com for more. And thank you to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, viz... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilianovsky, David Bizek, the Mysterious Michelle X, Elton Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stroll, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona, Visa, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z. Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Hallsmith, Martha Bergner, <gasps> Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Theresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, and Isa Tuzi. I hope I said that last one right for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.